This is a Media Lab podcast. Dave, do you remember your summer of 92? Is that Terminator? Terminator 2? It's prior. No, 91. <sighs> Terminator 2 is 91. Yeah, well, Terminator 2 is the first. Terminator 2 is the first movie I snuck into because I was not 14. Ooh, bad boy. Uh, that movie has a special place in my heart. 92. Uh-huh. So I, I would have been 14. That's all I remember. What grade are you in when you're 14? Nine? You would be, yeah, grade nine-ish. That was a big year. I, went, I started going to high school yeah. in the big city. I was originally in the Catholic board, which goes to grade eight. And then I discovered- Well, you really, you really didn't take, <laughs> did you? They tried so hard to save your soul and you're like, no, I reject if this. If there's anything that says, if there's anything that screams Catholic, it's, it's this is how I turned out. <laughs> it, it just doesn't work. I think history has borne that out. It was only there that I realized that uh, public programs had this thing called junior high, whatever the fuck that is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I just started, I, well, in September of my 14th year, I would have just started high school. I was trying to think about this and why I bring up 92 specifically is because in 1971, 1942 is as far away as in the year 2021, 1992 is. Oh my God. If you think about it, right? It's 30 years. It's 30 years in the past. So I'm trying to think like, oh yeah, like that would be like me at nine years old. Yeah. Me at nine years old running around on the farm. Uh, and I think I, I could be wrong at this. It could have been like the year before or the year after, but I'm pretty sure this is the year that we as a family got into like this really bad car accident oh, where we were in the big city of Red Deer, Alberta. And for like Westerner days, like whatever their fair thing is that goes on there. And we were turning left on the flashing green light and the guy coming in the opposite direction didn't stop. Ew. So he just hit us right on the rear back wheel. So no one was like hurt. Like we didn't get like injured or broken bones or anything like that. But it's like, as a nine-year-old and you get smoked by a car, like just the sound and spinning out and oh, the yeah. glass shattering and everything is like very traumatic <laughs> oh, experience yeah. for everyone. And yeah, that was, a, that was not a fun day. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I've been in a few car wrecks, especially as a kid. My brother was hospitalized once. Uh, mm. He came out of a mall parking lot, got T-boned in a minivan. Mm. Yeah. But we were older. I think I'm pretty sure. I mean, we were driving. So he was, I think he had just got his license. So he was probably 16 or 17. Uh, nine years old and getting into a head on collision at any velocity is, yeah. Uh, yeah. Explains how you drive. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> what is that supposed to mean, you son of a bitch? Uh, anyways, do you want to like this snuggle over here on the couch? Well, I think. <laughs> The first thing I'm going to do is uh, ask you to rub this old ashtray on my ass while we slow dance to this LP. Oh, man. On a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone, especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. My name is Kyle. And I'm sick of small town American movies. 
Also, my name's Dave. And I'm the machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then another apocalypse happened. Somehow, it's used its powers to transport us across time and space. So now we're on our way back to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although, we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the film Summer of 42. And that house up there, that was her house. And nothing from that first day I saw her, and no one that has happened to me since, has ever been as frightening and as confusing. For no person I've ever known has ever done more to make me feel more sure, more insecure, more important, and less significant. That was back when summer seemed forever. I wish somebody would invade this dopey island! Hey, Oski, it's that lady again. Of course, we do have to give a big thank you to our patrons, Green Girl YYC and It's a Conspiracy podcast. I think in order to set the context here, Dave, I mean, I'm assuming you have no relationship with this movie. No, never heard of it. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, okay, so I have heard of it, but that's really about it. I, I, I know it from the theme song first. because There's a the theme, theme song? Yeah, the theme of Summer of 42 is like this uh, adult contemporary standard. It gets redone all the time. Like Barbara Streisand has sung it. Frank Sinatra has sang this. Like that that's the only context I have of this movie whatsoever. Did not know what it was about. Don't didn't know anything else about it. Also, it always goes back to The Simpsons. There's an episode called The Summer of Four Foot Two that I knew was a reference to this movie as well. You know, Helen and I have been talking about this thing she read, uh, she watched about these people that have this weird brain anomaly where they can remember every day that they've existed oh, through. that is not a thing for uh, me. But. Well, I think that you have this thing with uh, musicals and with The Simpsons because uh, I'm pretty sure you've named an episode in every one of our episodes. <laughs> I feel like this, the writers were growing up in the 70s because there are so many references to these films in the early oh, yeah. seasons of The Simpsons. That's like, it just is remarkable. Going through 1971, it's like, oh, that's like a Simpsons reference, and that's a Simpsons reference. I'm like, oh, that's weird that I never knew that before. Anyways, that's where I'm at. The context I wanted to do was more of like the coming of age film, which this is kind of squarely in, as uh, as as I understand it. We haven't watched the movie yet, of course, Dave. Oh, right, How right. Possibly the deep know? and rich fiction. We haven't seen it. I don't even know that's that right. it's a small town American film because I've never heard well, of it before. Yeah, I've never heard of it before. Yeah. But I guess what is your... <laughs> what is your take on coming of age films in general? Uh, I thought you were going to ask me for my coming of age story, and <laughs> that's gonna. That's, well, I was on Nantucket, and <laughs> that's its own podcast series. I'm pretty sure that Kyle still hasn't come of age. Coming of age films. I mean, I don't know. We watch a lot of them, so I guess I couldn't name one as though it were of pivotal importance in my movie persona. If we if we think about the eighties, Ferris Bueller would probably be like a sure. like a big one. Oh, we watched American Pie last American season. Pie. Yep, yep. Yeah, I have trouble defining it. I think too, in the last ten years, all of these genres have been so muddled together that I don't even know what 
Yeah, what's coming of age? Is that it's puberty? Usually, yes. Yeah, so not Goonies. <laughs> no, not really. But I mean, I mean, in recent years, I mean, I've referenced this movie now quite a bit, which is Boyhood. I loved the mm. movie Boyhood. I right. was like just watching him go through through his life. Uh, there is a great movie called The Edge of Seventeen with um, Haley Steinfeld, which I think is mm. really great. That came out a few years ago. Have I seen that? I only bring this up because coming of age movies tend to be you have to be really really bad for me not to like a coming of age movie is mm. really what it comes down to i don't know what it is it's just, I just like seeing that time period of a person's life it's like the stand by me thing right i love the movie stand by me yeah, good, uh, right. right which is, is that just coming like, of age i guess yeah yeah, yeah you know there's a the murder face, in it so it's yeah. usually like a loss of innocence at some point loss within the narrative right so you're moving from childhood into like early adulthood you might not actually be an adult yet by the end of it but and i i think part of it is because i personally feel like i never truly had a childhood this is for my therapist wow. to get into i'm not going to get into it in this wow. podcast so We're i like yearn to, I, I yearn to go back to those times so there is like that sense of like lost nostalgia that isn't my life but it's like oh, i wish i had that life and i had that moment that i you know crossed over and anyways that, i think that's the psychosomatic thing of why i like coming of age movies so much i thought you can start rapping i think there's a good correlation here uh, as to why you like these small town american films i mean this sense of nostalgia i don't know what happened on the farm cal that forced you to grow mm -hmm. up so early uh, it was the udders i don't know i've never milked a cow <laughs> Uh, one, get my big forearms, one, you get big forearms. Yeah, that's my great regret is having never it's handled not an udder. A cow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not having, never slopped the cream, as they say. I never had the teat in my fist. Uh, I never fisted the teat. That's disgusting. Yeah, but you do have a soft spot for this idea of reliving your youth. And I don't know that I do anymore. I'm too old. I don't even remember. Yeah, you're, you're, the, you're, you're the cynical one. I'm the optimist one. It's like, yeah, it's like, it's great back then. You know, uh, well, I mean, I, <laughs> I, mean, I don't like, I don't like, I shouldn't say that hundred percent because I do find that nowadays in, in current filmographies that nostalgia is, is starting to really wear thin for me where it seems to always be presented. Like the past is always better and mm -hmm. present day is always worse. And mm -hmm. like, well, I think that's maybe an oversimplification of what actually is going on. You know, I think the other thing, we'll see if the listeners agree. But I think becoming a parent changes the context of nostalgia because now I'm watching my right. son growing up and I can't, we, he, my son just had a birthday and I can't remember who we were when he was born. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so much going on. So when I watch a movie like this and these, uh, I mean, when we are about to watch a movie that I know nothing about that might have <laughs> something to do with what we're talking about. Yeah. I, I found myself actually, yeah, like you brought up, disconnected from it. Which is not to say, of course, that I didn't live a similar experience. And there's certainly moments that made me think of my uh, youth, my ute. But um, yeah, I'm not that, I'm not that soft hearted. I think we've been able to tell that this season, Dave. Okay, <laughs> you know, I still have a soul somewhere. Uh, well, yeah, let's try and find it maybe. Oh, there's empty boxes in the back there. Okay, so let's do this here then. So, so we're like dancing around it. Let's go and thank some sponsors. And then when we return... We'll talk a little bit more about the summer of 42. Don't you have fond memories of going every summer to the Nantucket coast, Dave? Just that fresh salt air in your face and going and buying prophylactics from the local corner store. I, I just like 
spending time on the beach staring at older women who are happily married. I can do that here, Dave. I'm talking about going to the Nantucket coast. Oh, right, right. Yeah, not peeping in windows. All right. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't. What's Nantucket? I knew a man from there once. Grossly overrated, let me tell you that. Kylan Davis the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This week, with Pod Power, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. And this episode, Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us provide a Pod Power shout out to What's the Cheesemus? What's the Cheesemus is a new podcast with an inside look on Philippine X identity in the diaspora. Cheesemus is the Tagalog word for gossip. So subscribe to hear weekly episodes about disappointing your parents, breaking it to your friends that you're not Italian, trying to figure out why you punched a car, and much, much more. What's the Cheesemus is produced by CJSR, Edmonton's campus and community radio station. Download it wherever you find podcasts and on whatsthecheesemis.transistor.fm. And Cheesemis, just so you know, is spelt T-S-I-S-M-I-S. I feel like I'm Filipino. I've, I've punched a car before. So. I was going to ask you, have you ever punched a car before? <laughs> oh, man. I punched Mater right in his stupid face. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about Rumi. 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 Hey, Kyle, do you have cold drafts? I sometimes give you the cold shoulder. Mm. Oh, what about your lights? Do they flicker? O- occasionally they do, yeah. And what's that dripping from your face? Oh, it might be a leak. <laughs> my sweat. I'm in a very hot room right now, Dave. <laughs> if you ever wonder what's really going on in your home, Rumi's Ask a Home Inspector service can help. Connect with a certified professional home inspector by phone or video call and get your questions answered. Rumi will let you know what's easily fixable with a little DIY or when you might need to call in some professional help. Visit rumi.ca, that's R-U-M-I dot C-A, and book your Ask a Home Inspector appointment today. I found this uh, medical journal. Do you want to find out what a fallopian tube does? I would like nothing more. All right. Well, we just took a detour into the summer of 42, Dave. How did you like your trip? Uh, was it 42 or was it clearly 1971, first of all? <laughs> Second of all... Um, well, I, they, they put up the right signs from 1942, yeah. from my understanding. And they yes. tried their best to use leave it to beaver vernacular. No, I won't say I hated this movie. It was fine. It was fine. It was, it was tepid. Have I used yeah. that word yet? It was tepid. There are a few moments... I, I'd never laughed, but there are a few moments that echoed experiences that i've had for example being embarrassed by a condom is hilarious god i i did laugh out loud at that scene i have to say i was also and you would know this because we were sitting right next to each other on the couch i was in a fetal position watching that scene through my fingers i was so embarrassed for him it's like oh this is so cringy watching this i can't deal with it and then laughing when he finally says like and rubbers i need rubbers you know, I, you know what separates me, and this might be a small town thing, is that my embarrassment is in my head because in an urban environment, that's in a shopper's drug mart. That is not with a <laughs> one-to-one interaction with a guy that you're going to see walking down the street. It's just 
it's just the tension of being in public and having to acknowledge yeah. that I may have the potential of uh, what do they call it? Uh, maybe they just say get laid in this. I forgot the, some of the phrasing in it. They, yeah, they say lay. They actually do say lay in this movie. Kyle, you couldn't get laid if you were a potato chip. I think my first condom experience buying was, was nerve wracking. I was probably embarrassed to buy condoms into my like 40s. <laughs> I bought them on Amazon because I was too embarrassed to go and buy them Wait, <laughs> in person. Amazon Even was, was already in around? Calgary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then you furtively, you're like, I'm not home. Just leave it by the doorstep. Yeah. And, just leave it in the just like, just like the uh, child in this movie thought that you could carry a condom for like three years in your wallet. <laughs> thing was still going to be good when you this used it. This is my good luck charm. Yeah. Uh, and you know, so ge going back to the general, general feeling, I couldn't get over the tone of it. Tone being that this in my mind was clearly written by a uh, reminiscent old rich white man about, mm -hmm. uh, a life that I don't understand, you know, uh, beaching in the summer and hanging around with, with the boys, the frat boys, like pre-frat boys on the beach. I mean, that, that's why I was going to say. When, when you say like this is small town America, it's like it is, but this is from a very different perspective. Right. This is rich people coming to a small town for the summer. This is not like the last picture show where it's like I live here in this town and I'm like seriously economically depressed. That is a, a great comparison we kind of chatted to each other about as we were sitting here in this yeah. deep and rich fiction about what an interesting contrast it is to... And as we both know, I mean, as much as I like the performances, I didn't really key into the last picture show. But if we had watched these two concurrently, that is a fundamentally better movie than this. Right. Um, right. Because it is, as you brought up in our preamble, um, trying to talk about the death of small town America. And this one's talking about a couple of uh, rich white kids who literally have nothing to do but twang elastic bands in their mouths like what yeah, the fuck yeah. is that and then go try to get some nookie on the beach and we get we should talk again about outdoor sex because oh there's God, no way having your first first sexual experience on a beach at night is, on the sand is, is like, good ugh, gross <laughs> no wonder she got some sort of like infection it's like yeah well you had sex on the sand <laughs> Like, what about actual crabs? Never mind, you know, the venereal disease. <laughs> yeah, you know, like actual real crabs, like hermit crabs all over your body. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not fun. It's, don't, don't do it, everyone. Just stay indoors. I have to say, so I had this roller coaster of emotions for this movie. Wow. I really did. Because when it started, and like I said at the beginning, I didn't really know what this movie was about outside of, I think it was a romance. Like, that's just what I, the summer of 42 is either going to be like, I'm remembering back to the summer of 42 or it's like this romance I had in 1942. I, it was like, it's going to be one of those two things. And so, you know, the, the, the voiceover starts and you see these three boys and they're peering over at this woman. I'm like, Ugh, what is this? This feels like it's like a set to Porky's or something like this. And then... You know, the performances started, they're walking around and it's like, outside of the main, main character of Hermie, <laughs> which, okay, whatever. But anyways, that tells Herman you, is We could just end the episode there. The main Hermie. character is named Hermie, so you don't need to yeah. watch this movie. I do think he had a solid performance in this movie. His friends, I don't think are actually very good actors. No, they're awful. Uh, which is hilarious to me that one of them had like a very long career and the main guy had made like five movies and then never made a movie ever again. But then it got into some of those scenes like 
finding the medical textbook and looking up like how sex is made. It's like, you know what? Not that I have any idea what growing up in the 1940s is like, but growing up in the 90s before the internet was around, like that is kind of what happened. Do you know anything about woods porn, Dave? No. Is that this porn is a, made of this, wood? This, no, this is a phenomena that so many people have, and I don't know if it's small towns or what, but if you go like out into the woods, like even though like a park that has woods inside of a city, back then at least you would probably find a, a pornography pages, like oh, a Playboy or something like that, stuffed into a tree uh, or discarded or oh. something. I, I this happened to me <laughs> in, in my life where me and my brother came upon like who was reading this here and left it here and it's all rain soaked and the pages are all like hardened and stuck together and stuff like that and it's like anyways that's what it reminded me of because like that is it all we had rain, to like it wasn't well, okay <laughs> <laughs> those aren't pillows so th- that experience of like this is as close as we get to like pornography in our lives is these snatches of like not like high quality grade pornography uh so that was like yeah okay i can i can sympathize with that that scene of him going to again, buying condoms i thought was so good and then boy i think we need to spend a lot of time with like the ending and like what you even consider like what the ending is i'm gonna make a very bold claim that it sounds like you're gonna completely disagree with me on don't worry most everyone will disagree with you but the scene where he's obviously infatuated with this quote unquote older woman who in real life they're six years she's six years older still an adult and a teenager he's infatuated goes over there you know sees that her husband has died in the war the half empty bottle means that she's probably been drinking wordlessly they have that moment it's there's that song playing on the record player and they have that dance and she kisses his cheek and i just want to stop right there she kisses his cheek and I wanted so much, and I know this, this is again, it's going for like the movie that wasn't made versus the movie that is made. If I was the filmmaker, that would be my cut to black moment. Yes. I felt like that was so well done. That whole scene of the music and playing, they're saying so much with just their eyes and their faces and the blocking of that scene. There's like, that's all I need. That's literally all I need. Like cut to black, go to credits. This is perfect. They then go further, and we'll go a little bit into detail about why they decided to go further and show them, like, going up into bed. While they never show, like, sex happening, quote-unquote, I think that is what you're led to believe has what has happened. And I think that's where the movie loses me, is, is past that scene. Because we have this moment, and as much as you think that you can process that at 14 years old... My argument is I don't think you can. And so I think it's intellectually dishonest to have this uh, thing happen where you're seeing an adult woman naked getting into bed, having those tender moments, and then basically have a voiceover that says, like, I never saw her again. And like, this is all the stuff that happened. And I got past it and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, the the, wait, show me that. Show me that, like, coming to terms with this moment. Don't just explain it away to me. The thing I had in the back of my mind is like it's as if if we go to be like completely like ridiculous original Star Wars movie A New Hope. Imagine if that movie was like showed you even more stuff from like before uh, the movie starts, and then gets up to the point where they show Leia like them blowing up Alderaan, and then there's a voiceover that says, 
anyways, we got a group of people together and we overthrew the empire. The end of this movie. <laughs> it's like, well, that's not the important part. Like, I need to see like the repercussions of this big event happening. And so that's where the movie really loses me. So I love like so that scene though of them dancing and and getting together in that tender moment. That I think should be shown in film classes to be like, this is how you can without dialogue communicate so much information without overloading the audience. And then I think they kind of ruin it. But that moment is so good to me, coupled with these other things, which makes it a little bit better, even though I'm not like hugely like this is like one of the best movies of all time sort of thing. Uh, where to start? I think, yeah, I, I will acknowledge as much as I had sort of tuned out by the point that that scene occur, uh, occurs, which I guess what I mean is I didn't connect to any of the characters strongly enough that when that happened, I was like, I already had this sense that this was going to try to devolve into some kind of softcore porn. Uh, right. It's just the way it was shot, how much emphasis they had with these really two boys there's a trio but the third kid is like shouldn't yeah, even be in the movie by the midpoint Super yeah weird. i agree and all their well the one guy the one you know rough and tumble annoying dude all he cares about is trying to get his first lay right and so the whole tone of the film seems to be about this price you know this implied price and there is one scene after the dance and the uh, presumed I don't know if they actually have sex, whatever that whatever. that nude moment is, where he's at the beach staring off into space. So, I, you know, maybe that's supposed to be some melancholy, but uh, who cares? I do think that there are moments that are shot reasonably well, but the tone is so 70s that with the except, like, I, you're right. I think the buildup when he walks in, you know, the record player's played out and you can just feel mm. the sense of uh, foreboding. You know that the husband at that point is going to be dead. Um, how he reads the letter and, and then she appears in the doorway. But as soon as she appears in the doorway, I mean, they picked, they cast a woman who is uh, gorgeous, especially mm -hmm. in the 70s standard, but she's portrayed as an object. <laughs> Wait, so sorry. What do you mean by 70s standard? Well, she's just a beautiful woman. She's a beautiful woman. But what I mean is like, that's not a 1940s look. We've oh, discussed that a little bit like off off this podcast uh, when we were talking about Bond. So idealization of a woman by the early 70s is already becoming, you know, as a certain form. She's yeah. we'll, we'll learn a little bit about her background, but she's a cover model uh, more than an actress. I don't know if you feel the same way, but I, I felt she's almost an object in this film. You know, there's, there's yeah. not a lot where I'm, you know, if I'm in that scene and I've learned a lot about where she comes from and her relationship with this husband so that I can understand why she's so distraught, then yeah, that's a very well shot, powerful moment. But really, we follow these prepubescent teenage boys and there's an implication that this is supposed to be this opportunity for him. And it's just, it becomes very awkward for me. And I agree with you. If they had just left it with the dance and even if she had kissed him on the mouth, which happens, and they had just cut yeah. away. You know, there's there's something to be said about about pulling out a little bit, uh, but then running for well, it felt like another ten minutes. Maybe it was five more minutes of slowly undressing and having this really awkward thing in a bed and waking up in the morning or whatever middle of the night, and she's clearly realizing that something's 
uh, awry. Done this, yeah. yeah, smoking a cigarette. I think the whole thing was kind of weird. And learning that this is supposed to be autobiographical by this writer, it just feels right. like a little bit of bragging rights. Like there's something well, about it. That's, see, that, that's where this gets like really weird. I, I'm going to take this as being like, I'm going to believe that this actually happened to this gentleman even though there's really no way to verify if this actually happened to him or not. Right. But for the sake of this podcast, let's just say this actually happened. I mean, he's adapting this. I do find that a little weird because yes, yeah, she is shown to be an object. This is not really a, like a defense of that. This is set up. Even at the beginning, it feels like it's a memory being remembered and we're like going back in time. And so, yeah, she is, she is going to be uh, this beauty object that he's going after so she doesn't really get anything any type of characteristics other than being nice like that's really all she gets to do the one thing that i do enjoy is that unlike some of the other examples that that we have seen in 1971 this doesn't feel to me like a predator going after a teenager this feels like something because she's in the pits of grief and she makes a really terrible choice, which is not right, but it's still different than being like, I am targeting this kid to go after him. Uh, This is not a Mrs. Robinson from the graduate situation. Yeah, it's not a death in Venice. It's not, I mean, there's been a couple, there's another movie where we've run into this that's, I'm blanking on, but. Well, Last Picture Show did kind of a similar thing where an older woman going after, yeah. Clearly, you know what? I mean, I don't know if this is just film in general, art in general, but 70s definitely trying to push some of these more taboo moments into a public sphere. And this one definitely has a lot less, yeah, violent intent perversion, I suppose. It's much more benign than that, but Mm -hmm. it's still in the writing. You know, that the whole thing is, you know, so if the boys are not necessarily uh, targeting to have sex with this older woman, they are certainly going after these young girls they're meeting on the street. And it's pretty aggressive. And maybe that's just how, you know, boys will be boys. dated back then. Yeah. Um, Just keep touching them until they say yes, I guess. And that was a really... That's a hard scene to watch in the theater. It's like, like, (laughs) back off, buddy. Yeah, it was weird to watch you know, her push back when I was like, yeah, fuck this guy. And then completely capitulate and then lie down on a beach and get crabs. You know, it's that whole, the whole sequence is so, you know, well, heteronormative. And then again either, yeah. right? Like and then they throw her out, you know? Oh, she got appendicitis and I'm just going to go and uh, try to read yeah. a medical journal. I mean, why aren't, you know, just, it, it's just weird. I have to say that I've read some steamy medical journals in my time. There are moments like you brought up that do spring up nostalgia. They remind me as a heterosexual male about what it was like to see my first porn and have to realize that, uh, you know, I just get to play in track pants. And that, that's the other thing. I'm back in track pants. So, you know, maybe I just come so far full circle that this stuff doesn't matter to me anymore. But, uh, yeah. but there are moments in that that definitely are enjoyable as a film because they uh, speak to a truth but it is dated in how it looks the uh, vernacular the narrative isn't that engaging for me and right. uh, yeah yeah and in the end i just i mean it's only an hour and 45 minutes but i, I just thought oh time to go to bed i, I have to say I, I the only the only statement you just said there that i'm going to push back on is that i really love the framing of this movie mm-hmm. i think you can tell that this director came from like classical cinema he he was not a a stranger to being behind the camera let's put it that way so (laughs) you talk like he had directed a a very prominent film before this one (laughs) 
So, uh, just to do some backstory and then we can jump into some more topics here. The Summer of 42 came out on June 23rd, 1971. It is rated 7.2 on IMDb. Uh, there's no rating available on Metacritic, but on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 79% from 24 critics. And then from 2,500 plus users, which is pretty low, but 2,500 plus users, it's at 72%. It is available on DVD and on Blu-ray. You can buy or rent this on iTunes, and you can also buy or rent this on YouTube. Currently in Canada, there is not a place to stream this movie. Its budget was $1 million, and it would go on to make $32.1 million. With inflation, that would be like a movie making $211 million today. It was the fourth highest grossing movie in North America and the fifth highest grossing movie in the world in 1971. Its plot description is, during his summer vacation on Nantucket Island in 1942, a youth eagerly awaiting his first sexual encounter finds himself developing an innocent love for a young woman awaiting news on her soldier husband's fate in World War II. Wow. It's like, That's it's a, a, that is a description. It's like, the, uh, it's like the scriptwriter wrote a book about it or something. <laughs> yeah, like something. <laughs> It stars uh, Gary Grimes as Hermie, Jennifer O'Neill as Dorothy, Jerry Hauser as Oski, and Oliver Conant as Benji. So Benji only made two films. Gary Grimes only lasted until 1977, I think, is like his last film that he made. And then became a real estate person or something. something. Anyways, I, I was reading up on him. Uh, but how about these other people, Dave? What, what do you want to say about any of these other actors? Well, the only one we should talk about is Jennifer O'Neill. But I do want to point out, I think Gary Grimes quoted, well, has been quoted that he tried to make some films and realized he just wasn't going to be good at it. So he mm. moved on with his life. And I agree. I actually really liked him in this movie. I, I have to say, I did. I really liked yeah. him. I have no idea about his other movies he was in. So maybe, yeah, he was like just not good. But Well, I no, know. I think I, I agree with you in the sense that he is definitely a teenager who is acting as a teenager. Right. You know, uh, so he, it was just, you know, flash in the pan. Mm. It, it fit him. But I wouldn't say he's a good actor. Right. Okay. Um, but it suited the character. Plus, the character was supposed to be kind of a shitty actor. We screwed up all the social interactions. Oh. That was, I mean, that was the other thing. I friggin' loved every time he went to her house and he tried to like act formal. Yeah, tried to be like just, an adult. <laughs> I could, I concur. And like he sits down and it's like, I will have a coffee. Well, like it's just take a black, great. take a black, yeah. fucking idiot. That's that's exactly my thoughts. You idiot! What are you doing? <laughs> I think. Uh, Anyways, Jennifer uh, O'Neill. Tell me about her. Yeah, I don't want to read this whole thing, but here's okay. So she's apparently Brazilian. Uh, became okay. a naturalized American. So I think she's insane because this Whoa, this okay. biography is pretty fucking crazy. And there's a lot of holes because I think a lot of this information comes from an autobiography that she wrote because she's quite a oh, prominent okay. person in the modeling world. Uh, but apparently she moved to New York when she's 14. She tried to kill herself because she had to leave behind her pets, a dog and a horse. She's a big horse wow, person. Okay. But for some reason, that same year, she's picked up by the Ford Modeling Agency, which is kind of awkward. And I think because she's riding horses, she's also competing in some horse stuff. You would know that. I don't know like much about horses. And stuff? Okay. And a horse fell on her. She broke her back and her neck. Oof. But somehow the next year, she's one of the highest earning teenage models. So she's in this high school in New York City. 
It states that she made an equivalent of $700,000 when she's 15 from modeling. Like, so it doesn't so make a lot a of sense. a few million dollars in today's standards. Yeah. yeah or, or no, that, that was the adjusted amount. I think it was 80,000, oh, okay. 70,000, 1960, whatever. Still, that's, that's a lot of money. Obscene. So she comes, tries to kill herself, becomes a model, breaks her back. And then all of a sudden she's the cover model of like all of the big magazines at the time. Mm-hmm. At 17, she decides to get married, has a kid. And then it's a string of nine husbands Right? And she's constantly getting divorced. And all of them die mysteriously. One of them did. No. Yes. Oh, okay. And uh, the, the, yeah, the relationships are brutal. They're like, there's abortions, there's sexual abuse, there's like, there's all kinds of crazy shit. So I won't go into all of them, but essentially every worst case scenario of a relationship, including like she's institutionalized in a sanatorium. Oh. Like, there's all kinds of crazy stuff. So uh, she's found in, her third marriage, she accidentally, I'm air quoting, shot herself in the stomach with her husband's gun. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. One, her longest marriage until like, so it, I think it might be the same husband. I, I forgot. Was the one that she's married for four years and that guy, they divorced because he had been sexually abusing her daughter without her oh. knowing for four years. Like there's one husband that was actually, maybe this is also the same guy who defrauded all of her modeling money. And so when they split up, he had actually cleared out all of her earnings. But she is also has this distinction of being one of the longest careers in modeling because she's just so beautiful that most models, quote unquote, burn out by the time they're in their mid-20s. She apparently had, uh, you know, status in that environment until she was like in her 40s or 50s. So anytime mm. financially she would bought out, she would get new jobs and make millions of bucks again. Right, um, right. In the end, I think she, her she's still alive and she finally settled down with some guy and she wrote books about her life. Yeah. Um, and so she's got this very dramatic upbringing. And it turns out, because this film I thought was very soap opera-ish, she turned out to act in some soap operas and she's got a soap opera life, you know? You can just see a guy twiddling his mustache. <laughs> uh, something in the A, I didn't, I didn't really recognize the name. It wasn't a big one. So, uh, yeah. So, she's, uh, she, got a, okay. she lived a life, Kyle. She, she had some stuff that yeah. happened. This was written by Herman Rocher. Rocher? 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 I don't Rocher. think it's French. Rocher. Rocher? Maybe it's Rocher. Let's say Rocher. Herman Rocher. It's sure. R-A-U-C-H-E-R. Directed by Robert Mulligan. So he, Herman Rocher is the writer and he's actually crossed paths with some of the people we've talked about this year. Mm-hmm. It's very weird how much he's crossed paths. This screenplay is loosely based on his own experience of going to Nantucket Island when he was a youth and the relationship he had with an older woman, you know, allegedly. According to him, they never had sex in real life. It was only cuddling that happened. Uh, but they intentionally left that to be up to the viewer to decide here in this movie. He also had this good friend named Oscar or Oski Seltzer, who would then become an army medic and die while serving in Korea. That becomes important here in just a bit. But he goes to college to study advertising, which he goes on to do after graduating. And in fact, he helps out with the ad campaign to open Drum up roll. Disneyland. In what year, Kyle? 1971. That's right. Uh, no, it's not. That was Disney World that opened up in oh, 1971. Oh, I thought Disneyland Disneyland, was no, Disneyland opened up in 62. Oh, I wrote something, it wrong. 63. Wait, which one opened in 71? Disney World or Orlando? Disney World did. Oh, yeah, not California. Disney World. Ah, yeah. I got my ad, 
That's crossed up. Thanks a lot, Herman Rocker. So at the same time, he's doing all this advertising stuff. He's writing plays and screenplays. Uh, He originally writes Summer of 42 in the 50s. Uh, and according to him, he could not give it away. Like literally nobody was interested in making this movie. For good reason. But he then writes one of the early plays that Anthony Perkins stars in, you know, uh, Norman Osborne, Norman Osborne, <laughs> oh, Norman Osborne, the Roman. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Guy from Psycho. Oh, Norman uh, Bates. Bates. Norman Bates. Bates. So it's this play called Sweet November that gets him noticed by Warner Brothers. And while working for them, developing that screenplay, he runs into and befriends Anthony Newley, the guy who writes Pure Imagination for the movie Willy Wonka. They basically became like best friends for for their lives. Uh, After that, compelled by the hypocrisy he saw from his liberal friends who expressed support for black Americans while still being racist, he writes the movie Watermelon Man, which is directed by... Melvin Van Peebles. So it's his studio film before he goes on to make Sweet Sweet Back. Should be noted, by the way, that they had a contentious relationship on that on that movie. But he keeps coming back to the summer of 42. And initially, he wanted it to be more about his friend and be a tribute to him. But with every revision he does, he becomes focusing more and more on the relationship with this Dorothy. I think this is where we can put that criticism of male fantasy is probably what's going on here. He eventually sells this script to Robert Mulligan, the director of this film and the person who does the voiceover at the beginning and end of this movie. If that name doesn't sound familiar, his biggest success up until this point would have been To Kill a Mockingbird. That is the movie that he directed. So just a little movie called To Kill a Mockingbird. I don't know if you never heard of it, but... uh, Uh, I I read the novelization of that movie, actually. So he was really eager to recreate the magic of To Kill a Mockingbird. He hadn't really had a hit in a couple of years. He was like, I need something that's going to bring me back that glory. And he thought that this script could do that. So because he comes on, Warner Brothers agrees to fund this movie. But Warner Brothers is really not that supportive. They really don't want to make this movie. They're only doing it because of the fact that Robert Mulligan has signed on to be director. And so because they're so scared that this is going to bomb, they work out this different deal with Herman Rocker. So they gave him a share of royalties to the box office rather than a traditional payment. Uh, And they gave him this advance to write a novelization of the movie before it was released. So, yeah, so this is actually a little bit counter than what they normally do. So he writes this book about the movie. He writes the book before the movie even comes out. In that book, what happens is that he actually does do what he initially wanted to do with the script. So he doesn't really focus much on the Dorothy angle and really just focuses on his friend. So it's this weird thing is that the novelization is actually not really about the movie, but like this new story about him and his friend. Regardless, surprisingly, this book becomes a bestseller. Like, this skyrockets, become goes out of control, uh, popular, increases interest into this movie, and then blows up the box office at, at the movies. This was so popular, as we said, like the fourth highest grossing movie in North America, that up until his death, Rocker was still claiming royalties from this movie that, like, he just set him for life. So, as mentioned, this was based on Rocker's life, although the true story seems even more tragic. Because he did know Dorothy and her husband. Uh, like in the movie, the husband kind of pieces out right at the very beginning. He did come over the one night, only discovered that the telegram, you know, that he he was dead was there. 
but not only had she been drinking like very heavily, it was obviously like inebriated drunk, almost falling down. She kept calling Hermie her husband's name. So that it gets into like really weird territory here. Now, little addendum here, but shown in the movie and in real life, apparently he comes back, finds this letter that says that, you know, it's, it's best that um, I move on, blah, blah, blah. I uh, never sees her again. Well, um, after this movie becomes like this huge success, he got dozens upon dozens of letters from people claiming to be his Dorothy uh, that wanted to come back into his life. One of them actually was her. Oh. One, because he noticed the handwriting was similar. And B, because she was mentioning things that only she would know about. She wrote and said that she had been fearful for years that she had traumatized him forever and was happy that he'd found success, but had no desire to rekindle anything from the past. And that's basically the last thing that was communicated between the two of them. That's it was, that should have been in the film. I well, I mean, the only way to put that in the film was for the film to first come out. Because <laughs> oh, that's when she, not that she wrote some after but the, all of it. You know, like the reality yeah, of it. Okay. Yeah. Let's keep moving. Nominated for four Academy Awards, it only won one for Best Original Music Score. In your opinion, before we get into uh, Robert Mulligan, did you like the music in this movie? I have to say, I didn't yeah, really. I was... like, it's, it's nothing that really grabs me. And maybe that's just because, you know, I've listened to now decades worth of film scores. I'm like, well, there's a lot of great things. I mean, even in this year, in 1971, Much it's like, I, yeah. I, I like Shaft's music better than this music. Yeah, so this, I mean, like this felt like, well, I mean, it is now probably not just elevator music, but stock music. You know, this is, well, very, that's what I mean. The, yeah. This is why it's the adult contemporary charts yeah. that we, we adapt this song. It's easy listening. It's easy listening. I'm stuff just surprised it won like. an Oscar. It's weird. I can't wait to hear the heavy metal version of the title song. Well, where do you want to start, Dave? Is there anything that you want to like delve into a little bit more? Um, no, I mean, we, we, hit, we hit a couple of points right off the get-go. I'll just quickly mention, just because I didn't like the way this film was uh, created. You know, Robert Mulligan is quite a, I don't know, prominent director, at least because he made Mockingbird. But I did read that he was originally put on to make Taxi Driver. And then yes. the screenwriter is like, you're not getting this because Absolutely you're too boring. Not, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're not complex enough. You're too simple. You're simpleton, which I agree. Well, I, yeah, I, I, he would have been a terrible choice for Taxi Driver. I'm not, I'm not going to try and make that argument. But part of the reason why he would be bad for Taxi Driver is actually why I think that he was a good choice for this movie in that there is that restraint. We have seen, like, for instance, this movie is rated R. Did what? you know that? This it's rated R because of the language. They say shit like way too many times uh, uh, in, inside this movie. the number of times they use a word? Right. But they could have, if they really wanted to, to be even more salacious, they could have shown like full frontal nudity from her if we wanted to. And there's none of that. There's literally no nudity in this movie whatsoever. And I thought like, that's an interesting choice, even though they have like a quote unquote sex scene, that it is very chaste the entire time. It feels like you're watching a 50s movie because you couldn't show anything like that back then. I, you know what? Because we've been living in 1971, I was actually surprised that we didn't get at least one nipple somewhere. Right. Because that's been pretty par for the course so far for every movie. I'm pretty sure we've seen something. But um, not that I needed to be titillated for this film. I just thought it was too slow and too okay. reserved. And it had this pallor. And again, there are moments like we brought up 
that push through that. So yeah, the funny interaction, you know, with the drug, it's credited as a druggist, which is probably not a term pharmacist would like anymore. Not anymore, no. Um, you know, yeah, a couple of the interactions with, uh, with Dorothy, him trying to put on airs, as they used to say, but the rest of it felt tired. And I, you know, if we'd watched this before we watched the last picture show, maybe it would have been a different experience because maybe there would have been something yeah. more cute about the way this thing's built. Watching the last picture show and you know, whether I got into it or not, Bogdanovich, whether, whether I like him or not, <laughs> really cut into trying to make it as gritty as possible, you know? Uh, yes. Whereas this one's the opposite. Yeah. The best word, this is a very like modern word that is actually not even used all that much anymore. But to me, this movie feels so twee, which is like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, oh, it's like so nice and like so idyllic in this little world. And like everyone is like a- adorably um, sweet and, yeah. sweet to each other and everything. Yeah. Even when they're fighting, they're like, well, I still have your back, man. Like, you know, yeah, there's yeah, nothing yeah. too terrible that goes on. You're looking for a fat lip. Like, right, exactly. You know, all I, that I'm pretty stuff. sure that in the 40s, people didn't actually say that, you know? I think Probably that, not. I think that's the thing that I bugged me the most about the tone is that it harkens back to nostalgia of the projection of the 40s through, as we learn, the FBI control of the media, you know, during the war. So this is that Norman Mailer world, you know, where everybody lives in this cute house. They all wear cute clothes. They all speak to each other in cute language. I am shocked that this is rated R because I didn't even notice that there was any swearing. I don't consider it swearing at all. Well, that's that's you. Uh, I'm just saying, yeah, the MPAA is like, ooh, like we better, yeah. <laughs> we better be careful here. And so it's it's, it's kind of weird, kind of weird to experience. I know this is there's a recurring conversation we've been having, and I know that you have had continual gripes with pacing in these mm. in these films. And for me, it's like this is so up my alley. I just love. <laughs> the slow build up to stuff mostly because i find again if we're looking at modern films i always find they're moving like way too fast for me it's just like they give me some sort of character development here before we move on to the next scene now i won't say that this has like excellent character development but at least i understand the main character and what his drives are and what's what's going on as simple as they are so you feel like you understand him by the time we get to the end yeah i'll agree with that i think for this type of film for this type of story the pacing is fine because it is trying to settle you into Nantucket and it is trying yeah. to show you. I mean, there are intentional scenes of what it was like to be a bored boy in the forties and you're literally yeah. just sitting on a fence, sitting, twiddling a ball yeah. and twiddling thumbs. Counting. Like it literally is like, God, give them an iPad. Just give them an <laughs> iPad. Here, I wrote a bunch of notes actually while I was watching this movie. First thing that I have to say I don't know who the sound mixer was, but at the very beginning and where I had like the first like, uh oh, feeling that I was going to like absolutely hate this movie is that they have that scene at the beach. And I have no idea what they said, because those waves are so loud in the background. It's like just like dampen those <laughs> the, the waves so I can hear what these people are saying. I was, it was like I was watching a Christopher Nolan movie where it's just like, blah, 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 like everything is going. I can't hear what anybody is actually saying in the movie. Wow. Well, call I don't out. know if you agree with this, but the, those waves were so loud. Well, uh, yeah. I, well, this is the thing. I mean, I, I, I mean, I wouldn't have thought of Christopher Nolan. Uh, that's a reach, in my opinion. Uh, I know you have long arms, Kyle, but that's a bit of a reach. Yeah. I will say that the entire processing of this, the type of the use of film, how they use light, the audio mixing, the dialogue, 
it just felt very and uh, what was i don't know the word you just used i can't remember but i totally agree i mean there's a haze around it there's like yeah um the the color palettes all of it was well, very you, you mentioned like um soft so, yeah soft you were you were mentioning soap operas before and it does it feels very like soft focus like yes uh that that sort of thing it, it's a hazy dream that we're going back into so i don't know if that was the intention that is definitely what it looks like though is like nothing is really ever in like super focus in this movie the, yeah the only two camera shots we're going to start getting technical on this podcast when they're on the boat and they're doing that little uh, focus on Hermes, oh, right. yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, obsession. And then in the uh, sort of the critical moment in the house, I think those those two moments show some deft DP work. Yes, but the rest of it does feel like a '70s soap opera on film, yeah. not on a not on a television sort of you know that tone. But um, the way it's shot, the way it's framed, you know, some of the. Some of the wide angle things of the lonely house on the beach are just so staid and boring. You know, it's like mm-hmm. they took a boring photograph and tried to make it alive, except the subject matter was already dead. So there's just not much you can do with it. I, I do have to say that, like, nothing about the shooting of this movie makes me ever want to go to Nantucket. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what a boring place to go to. Although, you know, if you need to buy some condoms, they've got different kinds and different Three brands. Kinds. Yeah. And it's pretty I was cheap. Surprised. Yeah, you can get thirty six for uh, twelve bucks. Yeah, it's, it's pretty get those good get those magnums back in nineteen forty two. So there's this that scene where it's like the movie within a movie, right? Mm-hmm. So they go to the movies with the girls. The movie playing, by the way, is something called Now Voyager, which stars Betty Davis. That is not important, but what is important is one of my favorite moments of again this awkward teenage dating when he acts. He tries to put his arm oh, around yeah. her and actually elbows her right in the face. Fuck, so good. It's so funny. <laughs> she had a great reaction. I think that girl was a better actress than the rest of the cast. She did a great thing <laughs> I about- I see what she's up to. Yeah, yeah we should have looked at her. Because she, she does that great- She actually plays that character so well, which is the sort of mousy girl, but she's actually in that moment. She wants it to happen. And so she's not complaining of getting elbowed in the eye or having- uh, It was weird to hear when she met him again about whether her arm was bruised. I mean- what was he trying right. to do to her breast that he was worried that he harmed her arm permanently? <laughs> He's like grabbing it. By the way, just going back to that movie within a movie, because they show like a, I think a lengthy scene from it. But uh, it's the actor Paul Henry. And I just think it's so cool. I mean, I, not, not that I condone smoking, but like oh, this dude. is why people. It's like he lit two cigarettes and then gave one to the. Uh, the woman's like that's so fucking cool it's a wonder people smoked all the time like that's cool <laughs> you know i had this thought when that happened i was like i have never i've given cigarettes to people i have never yeah. smoked like i've never put two in my mouth to give one that has been lubricated to somebody else uh <laughs> pre lube you always have to pre lube your cigarettes dave yeah i mean you don't want to get in there dry uh, yeah i you know i've actually dry mouth smoking a cigarette is kind of annoying it's very sticky. I don't know if you ever smoked cigarettes, Kyle, but nope, uh, I have not. You gotta live your life. You gotta go and get some lung cancer, some nicotine poisoning. You know, you're, what you're gonna do? Our next pit stop, you're gonna get like a carton of fifty cigarettes. Like you smoke all of these. You smoke all of these tonight. <laughs> do it right now. You know, you want to come of age, Kyle? Just put all these cigarettes in your mouth. One thing I thought was also interesting. This is an aside. So during that condom scene, before he go, well, when as he goes in, there's like a mother and son in in, in the shop. I guess I never realized that, like, the Jughead hat was a real hat that people wore. 
because that's what he's wearing. He's wearing like the Jughead like crown thing. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. When did Archie come out? In the 30s? So it started in the 50s, yeah. yeah. So maybe, maybe it was uh, an homage to his favorite uh, comic strip character. Maybe. Is it, what were we watching uh, before? Oh, uh, French Connection, where is a non-functional fashion accessory. I mean, there is yeah. no way Popeye Doyle's uh, cap is blocking any sunlight from his eyes. So like the Jughead hat, it's just, they just look good. What do they call it now? Drip? Yeah. You know? That's what I would have actually liked is like he, at the very, very end, after they dance and there's that sweet moment. She kisses his cheek. It's just Popeye Doyle kicks in. Popeye's here, kicks in the door. <laughs> it's like, whoa, this movie just took a turn. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, you know, in the final sequence when he's leaving the town, he dons the uh, Jughead hat because he's now a man. <laughs> he's now a man. <laughs> I shall eat all the hot dogs now. Yeah, okay. Although the new Riverdale, apparently they're all murderers anyways. Helen tried to watch them. they all have hot bods and everything? Yeah, I know. 12 packs. One of the other things I think the movie does a really smart thing with is that you never ever see any parents. Mm. And I thought that was a smart choice too. It's like there's these kids who are running around, like their parents are not important to their story. So of course they never show up in the story itself. And she's the only like quote unquote adult uh, other than the uh, shopkeeper. Also, the fact that he whistles jingle bells while he's trying to look natural <laughs> in the shop. Again, perfect. That scene is so good. I love that scene start to finish. Oh, man. You know where I really felt like this movie is going to go off the rails is when he's on the ladder. I mean, did he cream his pants? Like, yes, I think that is the what we're supposed to believe. Wouldn't that be a lot more obvious? <laughs> I, I don't well, know. they wore cotton pants back then, Dave. So that stuff wicks. That stuff wicks. <laughs> I don't know about you, but... If, I, if I'm standing on a ladder and a woman that I'm, uh, you know, uh, reacting to has her face at my ass, I would, I don't think she'd be asking me if I was having a mini seizure uh, <laughs> or something's wrong with my knees. I think it would be a little bit more prominent that uh, something had actually gone wrong. But, the, you know, that whole sequence where he's like imagining parts of her, I mean, you know, again, it harkens back to being a teenage boy. But it made me worried the film was going off the rails. And I think I texted you that. Either there's going to be a pedophile or a murder. There's just something about the way that scene is shot that we're getting into that perversion sense where, you know, you're not really sure which way it's going to go. And then it goes neither and just stays in the middle. So mm -hmm. it was kind of a weird scene. Yeah, that, that, that's what I think. I think that like it's a sweet movie in many ways. And I think that it uses nostalgia almost to its own detriment in many ways where it's like it feels too much like unreality for the, for these boys running around while still trying to be realistic quote unquote realistic i wish you were more realistic so i do agree with some of the critics that i read at the time they were like this tone feels a little bit off or what it's trying to do i just happen to be much more positive i think on this than than what you are obviously but i think even what some of the critics were at the time maybe it's my own personality that i just love these types of coming of age movies that is my albatross around my neck that i just can't get past like oh it's like so cool that they're like discovering themselves and like going off and stuff uh even though i have like huge criticism of how this movie ends i feel like what we need to do kyle is uh buy a couple couches for <laughs> our spaceship and uh let's delve into what happened to you as a child because uh, there's something there that you <laughs> clearly clearly feel like you missed out on. I've, I've, I've already creamed my pants. <laughs> Once per episode. I keep wondering why yeah. your knees are always shaking. <laughs> <laughs> That's for me to know and you to find out.
We're done here. All right. Well, the machine has told us that we do need to wrap this up. So I guess it's time to go to Critics' Choice, who anyone who wants to actually write us a little jingle or theme song is more than ba -ba -ba -ba. welcome to do so for this. Critics' Choice. Uh, it's Critics' Choice. Yeah. What does Ebert think? What about Pauline? <laughs> <laughs> she hates everything. <laughs> Ebert did not like this movie. He wrote the following. Nostalgia. Wait, wait, wait. Is this going to be the first movie of all time that you will go against your critic hero? Yes. Yeah. Wow. I, I, wrote, I wrote it a little bit higher than what he did. He gave this, I think, two and a half stars out of four. No, sorry, two stars out of four, Yeah, I think is what he did. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Nostalgia is used as a distancing device to keep us safely insulated from the boy's immediate grief, love, and passion. Summer of 42 seems to be suggesting between its frames that since all these things happened long ago and far away in a world of meat rationing and old Eguentine ads and black Hudsons with running boards and theories about the care and use of rubbers, that the boy's experience is somehow less intensely human. He goes on and basically goes into much more detail. But yeah, his, his big thing is like what we kind of just ended off there with where there's this nostalgia and dreamlike quality, but then we also want to have like this human feeling by the end and he doesn't think that it actually ever gets there i think he could have summed it up in one line we just said two stars it didn't make me cream my pants <laughs> well I that'll got, have to be our that's our review actually on Letterboxd i got down the ladder week. without any and without any problems yeah pauline kale actually did not review this movie or if she did i cannot find any record of a review that she left so instead i went to the new york times Ooh. to a critic named vincent canby who wrote, Summer 42, which opened yesterday at the Fine Arts Theater, is the story of Hermes coming of sexual age under circumstances that are, I suspect, a good deal more common in novels and screenplays and in the Hermia-like fantasies of middle-aged writers than in real life. However, one of the good things about the film, which is based on an original screenplay by Herman Rocker, is the reticent quality of its romanticism, which is recorded by the camera matter-of-factly, not subjectively indulged or interpreted in the cinematic equivalence to purple prose. They actually go on, this Vincent Camby guy, he mentions how he actually already, he also read the book <laughs> version of this, which he hated. <laughs> He's like, he flowers it with like this prose that, doesn't go anywhere and it tries to sound literary when it really isn't so that's kind of what he's saying it's like it's nice that the movie is like very like straightforward and that it doesn't have to call a attention to like the floating hill dunes of nantucket or whatever <laughs> that he wrote about and in, in, in the book sort of thing the soft crashing of waves as the tide came in i i think what we're saying like again in this case i don't think he realized that this was something that actually happened quote unquote actually happened but it does feel like middle-aged guy, let's write this movie about when I was a teenager and how I got with this hot woman. So that's what it, isn't that what this movie's about? I, and I, I mean, I know, I, I keep coming back to this, but that's why I think that this movie would have been so much better if you cut out like the first 20 minutes. <laughs> did the, I mean that, did the, the, did the rest of the movie and then dealt with the fact that, hey, like I just had my first sexual experience with this woman in a very tragic circumstance and way. And how do I deal with that and move on? But that's not really what they're interested in doing with this. Without reading the book, if Herman Rocker ended both the script and the novel in this position, then this is a middle-aged privileged white man's fantasy. Cause that's the yeah. only thing that stood out of that experience to him. Right. And yeah. the idea of the tragedy, and as you brought up, 
if you're laying with a drunken woman grieving her immediately lost husband and she's calling you by his name, that should not be a story about the first time you tried to get laid. No. And I think that's the thing that you have to be very clear. Like maybe as a 14 year old kid, you're like, oh, this is cool. But as an adult, you should be able to look back at that like, oh, like this was messed up. Yeah. What happened? There are layers there that you need to, you know, even through the lens of a 14 year old kid, you've got to give it a little bit more weight and complexity, much like we learned of uh, why they couldn't get the deal for taxi driver. Just can't. Yeah. Can't depict complexity. All right, let's move on. Yeah. We have to ask these questions that we always ask every episode. Does this hold up? And is it still culturally relevant, Dave? Yeah, I'm going no and no. I think that it's shot in a way that I think will bore most casual audiences. I feel like the subject matter has potential, like many of the things we talk about, but it it failed in it as far as a total, uh, you know, process. And uh, I'll be happy to... uh, both disavow that I've watched it and uh, never have to watch it again. No. I don't yeah, hate I don't it, know. but yeah, that, and that's the hard part for me is like, like I enjoyed it though. Like I enjoyed watching the movie. I, I don't think this is culturally relevant anymore. I, I, I can answer that one easier than does this hold up. I think that there's scenes that I might return to, but yeah, I'm, I, I do not foresee myself anytime soon being like, oh, you know what I need to watch tonight? Summer of 42. <laughs> like, it, I don't think that's ever going to come out of my mouth that that's the movie that I really need to watch. I'll just do a quick retort to, you know, the scenes that we're talking about enjoying, they've both been done almost identically in movies preceding this and movies that have come after. It, this is not actually, even you know what? forming. You want to know something interesting? That's actually exactly what Roger Ebert said in his <laughs> review in 1971. He said like, I've seen these exact scenes from uh, Second City performances here in New York City, and they were done better. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there you go. And I think that's the nostalgia part for you. Is I, I mean, I just couldn't name them off the top of my head, but I know you've seen these scenes somewhere else because oh, they've yeah. been done to death. And I, I'm pretty sure they. Uh, it's not like this. Like many of the things that we've been talking about this year, it wasn't trope forming. This is not the first time a boy having trouble buying condoms was depicted on right. film. You know, so eh. um, and as we've also learned, like on stage, people could get away with more things. So, yeah, they were doing this on stage already. Ham it up. Were, yeah, yeah. They should have done that. One more level of ham, one more slice of ham. And maybe I would have enjoyed it better. <laughs> that's, that's not kosher, Dave. Um, so in so talking about that, going even further with cultural relevance. So I just want to layer on some other things. I mentioned the the music of this movie and I, I agree i'm like i'm not a huge fan of like the music from this movie but that is in many ways i think what is the most culturally relevant thing that has come from this movie the main theme was covered by a bunch of artists there were lyrics put to the music afterwards so much in the same way that charlie chaplin put lyrics to the song smile years after that that melody was around but people from barbara streisand tony bennett frank sinatra sarah vaughn have all recorded versions of this song the 1971 version from Peter Nero got up to the 21 position on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Hot 100. Talking about filmmakers we've talked about this year, Stanley Kubrick loved this movie. He loved this movie. It was one of his favorite movies of all time. Like, he loved it that much. It, which is why Shelley Duvall is watching this movie on television in the movie The Shining. So, that, there's what that is. 
Brian Adams has said that this movie was the partial inspiration for his song, Summer of 69. I, I wish people could hear me making the face I'm making right now. <laughs> yeah. Do you not know that song, Summer of 69, from Brian Adams? No, I know Summer of 69. I don't see how that could be connected to this film. We'll have to look at the lyrics. Does, doesn't he, doesn't he uh, have a, a relationship with an older woman in that uh, in that song? Oh, I thought you were going to say he sings about not being able to buy condoms. And I don't remember that <laughs> that stanza. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh man, if I knew that song better, I'd make a, an allusion to ribbed pleasure. But um, there was a sequel to this movie called Class of 44 that came out a couple years after. The three main boys came back by the same actors. Uh, it was not very well received. Either at the time, the box office wasn't very good. Uh, so it's basically been forgotten to history. Good. Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers hated that deal that they made with Rocker ever since the movie became a hit. Uh, became a hit. And did attempt to buy back his controlling stake like multiple times. So in 1988, they made this movie called Stealing a Home. Which had, let's just say, very similar story beats to both Summer of 42 and Class of 44. As well as including other details from Rocker's life. Like it was like, they couldn't say it was an adaptation. Oh but like God. everyone knew it was an adaptation of these stories. So that they... You know, could just keep remaking that movie and not have to pay him. It was this whole thing. Why do we Anyways, keep giving Hollywood all our money, Kyle? It was both a commercial and critical failure, though, so it didn't didn't go anywhere. In two thousand and one, there was an off-Broadway musical made of this story. It was actually pretty well received at the time, uh, but then there was this little incident called nine eleven that happened, and then the show hmm. closed. However, during that very brief period that it was running in New York, it did. Uh, cause a spike in popularity of the movie and book so there was a but like the sales spiked for both of those uh just as an fyi uh there is a bootleg you can watch on youtube from 2008 from the barn theater of this uh of this musical I was barn say. theater i believe is in minnesota uh anyways i watched the first 15 minutes this morning so it's it's fine gross it's not, it doesn't seem great but it's, it's okay you can do uh, better than this and you deserve better you know? Well, I just like to look these things up and see what's going on. Just uh, lastly, in 2002, Jennifer O'Neill wanted to make a sequel Gross. to this movie where a grown-up Hermie has divorced his wife and come back to Nantucket only to then marry Dorothy, which seems to kind of completely miss the point of the real-life story and the story that's even told in this movie. But, well, as we learn about her character, it might be yeah. in character with her character. Yeah. yeah. Uh, she wanted to make it like a lifetime movie, like straight to television awful. sort of thing. Yeah, um, as of yet, though, nothing has happened. And I'm not even convinced that this is a thing that anyone is really trying to do anymore. But that's where its cultural relevance, I think, is going to, to stay at this point. Dave, I am so curious to know what you are going to rate this movie. But before we get there, that is what Dave and I thought about the summer of 42. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave, VS the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. Also, by the way, you should check out our YouTube channel because we are putting out some great videos over there. Going and doing trailer reactions, like mini video reviews of each week. So yeah, go check out our YouTube page. It's more succinct. Succinct. That's right. And we only occasionally yell at each other. If you want to see the entire list of films we watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page letterbox.com slash kdvstm 
And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. And of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So let's get to the rating of this movie. Dave, out of five, what would you give The Summer of 42? I've been kind of wrestling with this since we watched it 40 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, I just um, finished it. Yeah, I don't know. And not high. I, you know, my hesitation is this. I think it should be, you know, my gut feeling is like a two. But then I've been mm. thinking about some of the other movies and I can't stop thinking about having to go back. I feel like two's high because I've undercut some movies that have a lot more cultural relevance than this piece of crap. But maybe we're shot more poorly. So, you know, you know, I'll settle for two with the caveat, okay. the asterisks that anyone listened to this season this year, just know that we're building through 1971 and I apologize in advance for uh, not having already donned my afro and bell bottoms before we had started this season because uh, the longer we stay in this year, the more I'm realizing some of the uh, first movies were, were bangers. Bangers, Kyle. Yeah, I told you this and you wouldn't believe me. Um, like I said, this is not a home run for me. I do ultimately like like the movie, but I'm giving it a tepid, to use your word, Dave, a tepid three out of five mm -hmm. is what I'm, is I'm going to give to it. Uh, which does mean that it's going to average out to 2.5. We need to decide where this actually fits, Dave, because that is going to put it with the Andromeda Strain and the Omega Man. So I know you're going to say it's better than the Omega Man, but do you think it's also better than the Andromeda Strain? You know, it's, you know what, Kyle? I would watch Omega Man before I watch this again. Whoa, really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. Because as stupid as Omega Man is, it's at least stupid and it's not boring, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's a great, that should be the poll quote uh, whenever they re-release the Blu-ray of Omega Man. <laughs> it's, it's at least stupid and not boring. <laughs> Uh, I, so I would, I would tuck it under both. Okay. Well, I mean, that, that would fit with uh, my, my ratings. So that is going to enter our list then at our number 11 position. It's pretty high, man. Holy shit. 11. Well, we've only done 18 movies, so it's less than halfway. <laughs> it's, hey, it's, 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 no, it's no Nicholas and Alexandra, am I right? <laughs> oh, man. Um, all right. <laughs> which, would, which would you rather... Works I would watch this over Nicholas, Nicholas and Alexandra again. But what if you could well, watch... One, it's, it's, sh it's shorter. Yeah, and, I was going to say... What but if they're both kind of boring in places. If you cut out half of Nicholas... If you could cut out half of Nicholas and Alexandra and just get to the point, I think it would be a better movie than this. If I could see like the last 40 minutes of Nicholas mm -hmm. and Alexandra and all of the Rasputin scenes, then I would pick I was Nicholas say, and Alexandra. Yeah, Rasputin, the last 40 minutes, and maybe an intro just so you know who we're watching. So like, <laughs> Oh, maybe it's the Nicholas and Alexandra. Right. Okay, good, good, good. Let's I know what's on. going on now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I guess we should find out what we are going to be reviewing from this devilish machine next week. What did you call me? So I'm going to push this button. Oh, we get to watch Carnal Knowledge next week, Dave. This is directed by Mike Nichols. Mm. Do you like Mike Nichols? I don't know. 
you do like Mike Nichols. Okay. Uh, no, I don't know. Actually, I don't know if you do. Uh, I, I just am bringing this up. This is actually really great because I am currently reading the Mike Nichols biography oh. right now. So it's nice that we get to talk about one of his films next week. He would have made uh, The Graduate and Who's Afraid ah. of Virginia Woolf already uh, by this time. Okay. So I do like Mike Nichols. I am not reading autobiographies, Kyle. I am oh. reading Harry Potter books. What the fuck is Whoa, wrong with me? Yeah. What is going on with you I'm over in, there? It's like you have gone. You've been going like stir crazy up here at, on this uh, spaceship. You know, as much as hanging out with me has increased your swearing by easily two or three hundred percent, hanging out with you has broken me, Kyle. I'm reading <laughs> Harry Potter. I think it's more than enough time. I mean, unfortunately, J.K. Rowling is a kind of a she's piece of shit. Yeah. But yeah, but uh, the books, the books can still be fun. Yeah, she's revealed. Her Slytherin self. Just keep your mouth closed, you know? If you're famous, just don't have an opinion. It's okay. Do, do you want me to give you a fat lip, Dave? <laughs> Is that going to be for his or her pleasure? No, that's gross. Kyle, you couldn't get laid if you were a potato chip.